hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. is one that comes out of my memories from years ago when I was an institute teacher. It was one of those moments, I guess we would call them tender mercies. I had been sitting in my office in preparation for an evening institute class at Idaho State in Pocatello. I was studying the scriptures when a certain passage of verses came to life out of the New Testament. You'll remember that on that cold April night when Jesus suffered as part of an infinite and intimate atonement, he watched over his sleeping apostles. Remember that from the garden? At the end of his ordeal, he graciously allowed them to sleep just a little longer. And then after a time, he awoke them saying, Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. And even as he spoke, a great multitude of men approached, a mob, if you will. Judas came forward out of that group and kissed the Savior. Then John says this, and this is my point. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom? Seek ye. Now think about that. When they answered that it was Jesus whom they sought, Jesus said, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. Torture, humiliation, death, betrayal, everything awaited the Savior. He knew that. And yet there was not the slightest evidence of shrinking back, no hiding in the shadows, no evidence whatsoever of fear or reluctance on his part. Boldly he stepped forward to die with the courage of a God. That's what I had been reading. I was still thinking about this beautiful insight as I went down to teach a night class in the chapel. A young woman by the name of Amber Sayer was telling a story for a devotional thought to the class, and she said, My dad is my best friend. I can tell him anything, she said. And from there she went on to describe the wonderful relationship that she has with her dad, how close they were, how much she loved him. She continued, I never learned to cook because I spent so much time outside helping my dad on the ranch. And then she said, one day, her dad became critically ill and was life-flighted to Salt Lake City. She was shocked when she next saw him, attached to monitors, tubes, and wires that sustained his enfeebled body. 
She began to cry, as you can understand, and instinctively seeing her dad began to pray, saying the same things over and over again. Heavenly Father, you can't take my dad away. He's my best friend, and so many people depend on him. The ward needs him. The community needs him. I need him. And then she added, take me instead. And she meant it. Amber's love for her dad touched me, touched all of us that heard that story that night. And then all of a sudden, it connected. Because of Amber, I saw the Savior in a completely different way. Had there been no atonement made by him, all of us would have died in the most complete sense of the word. All of us would have become angels to a devil forever in abject misery. But Jesus, knowing all things that were supposed to happen, went forth, stepped forward at a critical moment and said, in effect, Heavenly Father, don't let them die. I love them. Take me instead. Well, Amber's offering for her dad was not accepted. But in the Savior's case, it was. He literally poured out his soul unto death that we might live. He took the punishment for our sins. He took our sins. He took our infirmities, our weaknesses, our pains, our sicknesses, all of the injustice of mortality, all the pain and grief, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. He bore it all for every one of us that we might live and in the end, if we choose, have joy. By the way, Amber's dad recovered. A miracle. We believe in miracles. But there is no miracle that can compare with the miracle of redeeming love. That is what the atonement is about. Amber, I don't know whatever happened to you, but thank you for sharing that story. I will never forget it. Anyway, in an effort to balance this fireside out and perhaps make it so that there's a little bit more humor here, of course, I'm going to turn to President Hinckley. And I want to share a story that he first shared in 1981. It occurred to me recently that there are at least three individuals who have very specific plans for you and for me, for our future, for our happiness. Now think about this. The first person that has a plan for you <laughs> is you. I mean, don't you want to be happy? I don't know of too many people who get up in the morning and say, ah, let's see, what can I do to make myself miserable today? The second person who has a plan for your happiness is Satan. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what his plans for you are. But the third person that has a very specific, tailor-made plan for you is God. A little bit of careful thought would tell us that the wisest course we can plot for our own happiness is to align our plans with God's. If we don't, 
then Satan's plan, by default, takes over and you know the rest of the story. A person without God in his life's plans <laughs> sounds an awful lot like this story. This is what President Hinckley shared. This first appeared in an English newspaper many years ago. It seems that an English company owned some property in the West Indies. During a hurricane, their property was damaged, so they hired a man to repair the damage. You'll remember this story. In regards to his experience on the job site, the contractor wrote the manager the following letter, and you can just see President Hinckley quoting this. Quote, Respected Sir, When I got to the building, I found that the hurricane had knocked some bricks off of the top. So I rigged up a beam with a pulley at the top of the building and hoisted up a couple of barrels full of bricks. When I had fixed the building, there was a lot of bricks left over. I hoisted the barrel back up again, secured the line at the bottom, and then went up and filled the barrel with extra bricks. Then I went to the bottom and cast off the line. Unfortunately, the barrel of bricks was heavier than I was, and before I knew what was happening, the barrel started down, jerking me off the ground. I decided to hang on, and halfway up, I met the barrel coming down and received a severe blow to the shoulder. I then continued to the top, banging my head against the beam and getting my finger jammed in the pulley. When the barrel hit the ground, it burst its bottom, allowing all the bricks to spill out. I was now heavier than the barrel, and so started down again at a high speed. Halfway down, I met the barrel coming up and received severe injury to my shins. When I hit the ground, I landed on the bricks, getting several painful cuts from the sharp edges. At this point, I must have lost my presence of mind because I let go of the line. The barrel then came down, giving me another heavy blow on the head and putting me in the hospital. I respectfully request sick leave. <laughs> Talk about having a bad day. Now the point. If you and I would avoid a lot of pain in our lives later, and a lot of spiritual injury, maybe we'd do well to think ahead, to plan ahead, and align our plans and our lives with the Lord's plans, the abundant life. <laughs> May the Lord bless you and keep you from messing things up. I don't know why, but Oh, several months ago, I shared this story, but I felt like I needed to share it again in a little bit more polished presentation. October 23rd, 1856. The Willie Handcart Company was camped at the base of Rocky Ridge. They had just passed a cold and miserable night in the snow, if they had slept at all. It would have been because of sheer exhaustion. Starving, weak, and chilled, they now faced what would be their greatest trial yet. They would have 15 miles to walk pulling their handcarts to get over the exposed stummit of Rocky Ridge to shelter at Rock Creek Hollow slogging through knee-deep snow and into the face of a howling northwest wind 
that dropped windchill below zero and pierced them through, it would take some of the company more than 20 hours to reach Rock Creek, and some would not make it at all, their bodies lying stiff and frozen along the road. Though the rescuers had found them, there were at that point only six wagons accompanying the Willie Company. Only the sickest could ride. At one point, Rocky Ridge climbs 700 feet in elevation in two miles. It is a steep hike under the best of conditions, and they had to keep walking or freeze to death. Archibald McPhail was one of them. He was given charge of the people in his tent. He made it over Rocky Ridge with his family to Rock Creek and took inventory of those in his charge. As was the case with so many in their weakened state, one woman was unaccounted for and had lagged behind. Note this and just let this reflect. Rather than stay in the relative security of the sheltered camp, Archibald felt it was his duty to go back and find her. Notwithstanding his own weakness and exhaustion, he cheerfully set out to find her. Four miles back along the trail on the far side of Strawberry Creek, he found her. He pleaded with her to come, but she refused to cross that icy stream in front of her. She would stay there and die. Archibald crossed the frozen stream, picked the woman up, but as he crossed the stream, he fell through the ice and was soaked to the waist. By the time he reached camp, his clothes were frozen to him, and he was deeply chilled. There was no fire for him. The men in camp were too weak and exhausted to go in search of firewood. With no warm food or drink, Archibald was put to bed under a handcart. The wind blew strong through the night and overturned the handcart three times. By morning, Archibald was burning with fever. As they broke camp and moved on, Archibald was loaded in the sick wagon. He would never walk again. Finally, just outside of present-day Evanston, Wyoming, Jane McPhail sat by her husband's side in the wagon as he quietly slipped away. A small tallow candle burned and Jane prayed the candle would last until Archibald's mortal sufferings ended. Finally, the candle flickered out at the same moment her husband breathed his last. He was 39 years old. I've always loved that story. Archibald McPhail is a hero to me. Because if, by the grace of God, I am given stewardship over someone else, I hope this story will always come to my mind and yours. Don't forget them, especially in a time of great need, especially in a time of pandemic or death, or whatever else causes them to need you. Greater love hath no man than this, 
that he lay down his life for his friends. Now, there was a story out on the lake tonight. By the way, let me tell you just a short, humorous story. Some of you saw my tease out on the lake tonight right at sunset. But here's the rest of that story before I get to the rest of that story. We have a small microphone that operates with a cordless microphone that connects to a cell phone. This morning, I got up and went looking for that thing, and I could not find it. I couldn't shoot that remote without it. I searched everywhere. I spent a good portion of the afternoon tearing the house apart looking for that very expensive microphone to the point where I was finally angry and frustrated, not at anybody else, but because I'm such an idiot to lose something so expensive. And I figured it was me that had lost it. And finally, I came in here and I plopped down on this couch, pretty much right where I'm sitting right now. And I said, Heavenly Father, I can't find it. I've looked everywhere. I don't want to lose that. It's expensive. Please help me. Well, (laughs) you can guess what happened. I got up a short time later and went walking back in where all my equipment was is and I walked is where it's stored and as I walked past my camera case I thought look in the camera case I looked in the camera case there was the microphone right where it was supposed to be in the first place did an angel slip it in there or did this dummy just not look carefully enough I wish it were the former, but I'm afraid it's probably the latter. Either way, I hooked it up, ran straight out to the lake, and I told you this story. This is one of the new stories I found about the prophet Joseph Smith. The family would know this from since time, since it first happened, but I didn't know it. I'd never heard it. When missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints came into Noxabee County, Mississippi, we're thinking that's where it is, preaching the gospel, Henry Thomas knew at once that it was true, the church he wanted, and he was baptized. Henry Thomas was a prosperous man on his way to making a fortune. He was a farmer. He was a blacksmith. He was a skilled man. He determined at once, as I told you, that he was going to immigrate to Nauvoo. He left behind a farm of 2,000 acres, 300 sheep, I said cattle, but it was sheep, horses, hogs, barns, and all kinds of implements. That, by any standard, is a good spread. Now, the arrangement he made was that all of this would be sold by a friend, an agent, but that man died, and that man's heirs took all of Henry's possessions. He lost everything. But his daughter points out, to Henry it was worth it, and he never regretted the loss of his fortune for the gospel. Well, he set out to make a journey from Mississippi to Nauvoo up the Mississippi River. At one point, they almost got cast into the water, but finally they made it to Nauvoo. While the rest of the family ate breakfast at the landing, There in Nauvoo, 
Henry declared, quote, I will fast until I see the prophet Joseph Smith. And at that, he started walking up into town from the river. Now, I could be cruel and I could stop right there and say, I'll tell you the rest of it next week. But no, I, no I'll tell it to you now. As he started up the street, a man two blocks away saw him coming. That man crossed the street, walked right up to Henry and shook his hand warmly and said something like, "It's how do you do, my friend? Something like that. To which Henry responded, I do not believe I know you. To which the stranger introduced himself as Joseph Smith. I am the man you have been looking for, he said. Well, the prophet Joseph offered Henry to bring his family and come and live in the mansion house with him. But Henry, having 12 children and not a wife, didn't want to crowd Joseph, and he told him that. He turned it down. And then Joseph says, I have a home. You can rent it. And so Henry rented the home from Joseph, and then in time, he built a home right there in Nauvoo that was right close to the prophet. And his daughter Catherine points out that several times when Joseph was hiding from enemies or from mobs or officers, he would hide in the Thomas home. In time, Henry built a very large store, kind of like a warehouse for merchandising. It cost him $3,000. He was in the process of finishing that home when the Latter-day Saints were driven out of Nauvoo in 1846. Henry received a pittance for his large property, and for the sake of following the prophets of God, walked away from his property again. Henry Thomas came to Utah. He settled, eventually, in Cache Valley, and passed away in 1865 and is buried in Wellsville, Utah. Henry Thomas knew the prophet and loved him, and the Lord loved him for it. I might add this one thought. When Henry first met the prophet Joseph, Henry took out a gold piece and pressed it into the prophet Joseph's hand as an offering. Joseph was touched, and he said, God bless you, Henry Thomas. You will never want for bread. And he never did. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week. <music>